Welcome back to episode 19 of the podcast Own It. I'm your host, Jorn Boditsky, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Satyam Chowdhury. In 2018, Satyam experienced feelings of isolation, anxiety, and depression when entering into his first year of medical school. However, over time, Satyam was able to find strategies that helped him cope with his anxiety and depression, and today, Satyam proudly owns his past struggles and hopes to help others in similar ways. As a major mental health advocate and stigma fighter, Satyam recently matched with a psychiatry residency at McMaster University, where he hopes to help those struggling with mental illness get back on their feet and live a fulfilling life. First off, congratulations on matching with a psychiatry residency. And second, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? Thanks, buddy. It's uh, it's good to be here. And I just uh, I'm really appreciative of the work you're doing and the uh, mental illness kind of stigma you're addressing through your podcast. We definitely need uh, as much of it as we can get. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I kind of want to begin our discussion by talking about your journey with anxiety and particularly how you've been able to own it. Certainly everyone's journey to getting there is unique, but you've not let your anxiety define you as a person and not let it interfere with your ability to find happiness or academic success in your life thus far. So let's start from the beginning of this journey by having you speak about when you first noticed feeling anxious and your initial thoughts and reactions. Yeah, so I actually kind of first started um, noticing things kind of being off actually the summer right before medical school as you kind of said in your introduction um, and you know I, I do have kind of a family history of mental illness so it was never something that was a huge surprise to me it was always kind of something on the, on the back of my mind as I started to kind of um, a, about a month before I kind of started I started to really feel like my mind was just kind of racing all the time like it really um like a really good description of it is like the, the sensation of drowning. Um, and, and that was when I really kind of um, started to notice things were off. Like I started to feel a lot more tired than usual um, as kind of my anxiety started to ramp up. Like the, the most basic things like, oh my God, is it raining outside? Do I need an umbrella? Like even something as simple as that could kind of throw me into um, a whole kind of slew of thoughts and, and kind of this, this feeling of like a heaviness, a weight, um, like that drowning sensation and, and that kind of stayed with me uh, kind of this was around August 2018 and, and, and it kind of really persisted and then as I got into medical school things only started to get worse I mean it's no surprise that medical school can be a very difficult transition for many but uh, it was particularly surprising to me when I, I just kind of looked around and, and, and part of this might have just been kind of the anxious brain um, but I kind of looked around, and I was like, wow, like everyone around me seems to be thriving right now. Like no one seems to be struggling. No one seems to be having this tough transition. And I think that's part of um, the challenge in um, medical school. And I'll kind of talk about this more later and we can kind of get into it, but, but it, it, it can be really isolating because not a lot of people want to talk about the fact that things are hard. Uh, and, and there's a lot of fear about kind of repercussions. So that was kind of how things started. And I actually had... An interesting story where my parents were, were really concerned and they wanted me to kind of get treatment and at one point they were like you know we really want you to, to take medication because you know you, we've had people in our family who have done it um, and I, I had kind of known everything about mental illness you know I, I learned a little bit about it throughout my time in undergrad I, I'd been involved in various volunteer organizations and, and there came a point where I was in in my anxious brain and my depressed brain I was in so much denial that I literally would when my mom would give me the medication that I was prescribed which was kind of Cipralex I would take it put it under my tongue pretend to swallow it and then go spit it out um, 
after they had seen me. And that's how kind of distorted uh, my thinking was at the time because I was so anxious about side effects and I didn't want to admit to the fact that I was kind of, um, you know, accepting defeat by taking medications. Um, so it was just a very interesting kind of time and a very dark kind of time. And then, uh, yeah, and that's kind of where everything kind of started to begin. And there were ups and downs, which I'm sure I can get into, but, but, but that's kind of the gist of it. It started right before medical school. I had a lot of issues with denial and, and not accepting it. And then I slowly kind of got into more and more psychotherapy and started doing my own work. Um, and that's kind of how I got to, 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 to a thriving place is where I would say I am now. Right. And I, I thought you raised an interesting point. I mean, obviously talking about when you started medication, that's one of my questions that we'll kind of discuss and, and go deeper further into. But um, one of my previous guests, Jason Finucane, talked a lot about self-stigma. And, and that's kind of the reason that, you know, people are afraid to take that next step in their mental health journey, whether that's taking medication or reaching out for help. And um, I, I do want to talk about the process of reaching out for help for the first time. And one of my previous guests on the podcast, Alex Hodgkins, shared a quote by a boxer, Ed uh, Latmore. Um, and I'd like to share it with you. The quote says that the heaviest weight in the gym is the front door. The way Alex and I discuss this quote in the context of mental health is that it can be used to demonstrate that it's an intimidating process to reach out for help uh, with a mental illness for the first time. So reflecting on your own journey now, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on whether this quote resonates with your experiences of reaching out for help for the first time, whether that be with a friend, family member, or a professional. Yeah, I actually love that quote. And it's, <laughs> I actually have never heard of it. And I definitely think it's something that's I'm going to be using actually in residency. One of my patients that I think about it, you know, like the idea of, you know, the heaviest weight being the front door. Like it's so true because you know for a variety of reasons. So so first, kind of thinking about my own personal experience, it was that it, it, there's a lot of denial in the sense that you never think that your own problems are serious enough to warrant help. Um, so that can be a huge thing. And then the second thing is even just kind of the fear and the stigma right like especially as a medical student I think you know the first thing I do with, with a lot of my troubles I start going online and looking at things and forums um, and, and, I, and I very clearly remember looking into the repercussions of anxiety and depression on pre-med 101 which, which is a really popular forum that a lot of people um, use when they're applying to medical school I think now a lot of people use reddit but but, but anyways I, I remember coming across a thread where People were talking about how, oh, you should never reach out to help to your school because it'll it'll go on your licensing exam and your your sorry your licensing application. It'll you know you'll have to declare it to your residency and you'll get blacklisted. And there's just so much misinformation, which I later found was misinformation, but also some people who have had really poor experiences. And, and that was just you know, the icing on the cake in, in the sense that I did not want to reach out for help because I was so terrified of like, you know, I'm just starting medical school. How is this going to impact me and my ability to practice a career? So it took a lot. Um, eventually, I think what, we, what was kind of the, um, I guess, straw that broke kind of Cramel's back was that it was just impacting my function too much, right? Like I, I just couldn't kind of sit down and, and put my head to work. I couldn't study. I couldn't um do what was necessary for me to kind of be achieving what I wanted to achieve in medical school and then I really just was like okay I need to try to navigate 
these resources. And, and I was really fortunate because, you know, the experience at McMaster for me was quite positive. I was able to kind of um, access help through student wellness, um, through our own student affairs. And I really did have a quite a positive experience. You know, I think for each individual, especially for those particularly in medicine or healthcare providers or anything where there's a college, there definitely is tricky waters to navigate because, you know, if I were to have taken a leave, for example, then that is something that I might have had to declare in my licensing application. I was really fortunate in the sense that I was able to kind of get help while I still studied. Um, but it is really tricky. So it's really important for, I think, people kind of listening to this, thinking about reaching out for help is one really kind of thinking about who are the people you can trust. Uh, and I often do think that there, you know, a lot of confidentiality is accessible through student wellness at various institutions. Mentorship is really, really huge for me, like trying to talk to people who have been there and done that. Like, I really think looking back that first month and, and that first couple of months, I actually, I didn't have mentors and I didn't have anyone to turn to to be like, hey, this is really hard for me right now. And a lot of times just to have someone be like, listen, like, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been in your shoes and hundreds of thousands of people who have kind of reached out and have kind of thrived because of it. So that was something I really lacked. So I think it, it's so true that the heaviest weight is the front door. And I think the two biggest things I would kind of pass on looking back is don't be afraid to reach out to kind of student services because there is a lot of confidentiality in place. And then also kind of thinking about who people are that are mentors in their lives that, that can kind of tell you like, hey, this has happened to people before. Right. And as I'm just listening to your story, as you speak about your anxiety, you know, I just think that a lot of people that I spoke to who have anxiety say that it's debilitating. And, and I think that, you know, having you share your story on this podcast is inspiring because, you know, people have doubt in, uh, doubts in their mind as whether they can find happiness in this world or find success in their career. And, you know, hearing more stories normalizes a lot of this conversation around anxiety and mental health. And it's so important. And, I guess where I kind of want to go next is, is picking off where we're talking about the medication. And you mentioned that you began the medication Lexapro to help with your anxiety. I want to bring this up because I know from others that who have started medication, it can be intimidating and overwhelming. I personally think that a lot of this stems from the stigma surrounding mental illness, but can you share your experience starting on a medication and offer any advice to individuals who may feel nervous or hesitant to take this next step? Yeah, I think, you know, it's something that, I obviously faced, and I very clearly kind of showed that how I, I was literally putting it under my tongue and spitting it out so that my parents still thought I was taking it. Um, but I see it all the time. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to do a lot of clinical rotations in psychiatry. And as I kind of go into my career, it's going to be uh, paramount for me to be having these conversations with people. I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that a lot of people are very, very concerned about side effects. And, and that was something that I was really concerned about. And what I realized kind of reflecting back is when you're kind of going on Google and searching up side effects, one thing to recognize is that when you're in an anxious state and when you're in um, that kind of dark place, that, that debilitating, drowning state, anything you read that can feed into your anxious mind about um, kind of um, things that will support you and kind of wanting to avoid, um, you're going to do, right? Like avoidance is, is, is a drug for anxiety. It makes you feel good in the moment, but then later on you start kicking yourself. So when you start searching up all these side effects, not only are you getting a bit of a negative bias, because the only people you're going to be reading are the people who are really facing severe side effects, 
but then your brain as an anxious person is always is going to take little things and, and kind of amplify them to the max you know and you know like some of the more common side effects people usually experience are you know when they first take medications they'll have a lot of kind of gi upset and maybe some like diarrhea because there's a lot of serotonin in our gut uh, and that was something I had, but but the good thing about that is it usually is transient in the sense that it passes in a couple of weeks. So, and, you know, the other two are usually weight gain and sexual side effects. I think weight gain, from my understanding, is, is quite overreported, and it's a tricky kind of phenomenon because when we're, again, when we're really anxious or depressed, we're doing a lot of behaviors that contribute to weight gain, right? Like oftentimes we'll kind of reclude, we'll avoid, we'll go in, we won't start walking, we won't exercise. And then we also like eating more poorly and not to mention the impact of kind of chronic stress and increased cortisol on our kind of bodies. So it, it's a tricky balance. I, I think sometimes a lot of these horror stories are more with like antipsychotics. So people who are getting treated with very kind of um, with drugs that are more kind of common for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, but even then, like, as long as you're having close conversation with a healthcare provider, it's very easy to switch a lot of these drugs. And it's quite rare to experience that. So I think that's kind of more tackling it from a pure informational perspective of, you know, side effects aren't the end of the world. But the other thing is, you know, you have to realize that when you're in that dark pit, like, it's either side effects or, you know, the end result for a lot of people could be thoughts of suicide and completing suicide right so it, for your anxious brain you might see side effects and be like oh my god it's, it's so terrible but but what's the consequence of not taking a medication you know and for a lot of people it's kind of staying in that dark place for longer and longer and longer and letting it ruminate and brew and, and that's when kind of really dark thoughts can start to seep in so you know medications aren't the be all and end all they definitely don't kind of um, automatically cure someone, but how I've usually seen it described and how I kind of resonate with it is it's usually like a, like a piece of armor, you know, like when you're in this kind of dark place, you're at the very bottom of the graph. And in order for you to start feeling like your normal self at the top of the graph, you need armor and you need things that help. And, you know, that's where the role of psychotherapy comes in, the role of behavioral activation, like going on walks, getting out there. But medication plays a really, really important piece because when I was really dark and down, you could not pay me to kind of get up and go for a walk or kind of go and exercise or go and do those things that kind of make me feel good. But when I started to take medication, slowly I started to notice like, hey, like some of those thoughts aren't as sticky anymore. And I also just kind of feel this, like this weight is kind of coming off my back. Uh, and that's when I was more able to, to do things that keep me well. So talking to people, responding to the messages in my group chats, uh, going out, going for walks. So that's where I think medication plays a really important role is getting out of that deep, dark pit. Um, and I think the very last kind of point I'll say is some people worry about long-term impacts. You know, we've had some of these antidepressants. Some people have been on these medications for 10, 20, 40 years, and there's been very little kind of long-term downstream consequences. And we have so many safety studies and efficacy studies that uh, I really don't think that people should be worried about kind of permanent um, lasting effects because there's nothing more permanent than kind of suicide or, or debilitating decisions, right? So that's kind of the last piece. So 
And again, you can always come off the medications, right? It's a lot of people, especially if it's their only first episode, will trial the medication for six to nine months, sometimes a year, and then come off once they've kind of built up these psychological tools in their toolkit. Because a lot of us don't, because we don't get taught this at school, right? Like we don't get taught CBT and cognitive therapy and acceptance and commitment. Like none of these things get learned. So I know I went on a bit of a tangent there, but really I think, you know, it's important to recognize what your brain is telling you and how it's distorting you. It's important to kind of recognize that side effects aren't permanent. And then three, that when you're in this deep dark pit, you need all the armor and all the tools you can get. So again, I'm a huge proponent of talking to your healthcare providers, talking to, um, you know, friends and family, people you know, but, but ultimately I, you know, as a psychiatrist or future psychiatrist, I'm a little biased, but definitely talking to your family doctor and your psychiatrist can be really helpful. No, I think that's a great answer. It was very well informative and it, uh, you know, it answers a lot of people's concerns and I think that's very helpful. And I kind of want to talk about what you mentioned when you, when you uh, spoke about armor and, and I want to talk about some of the strategies that you used and that people can use to help with their anxiety. Um, can you speak about your experience using mindfulness and how it's been able to help you with your anxiety? Yeah, that's been the, the biggest kind of tool for me by far. Uh, but it also was actually very interestingly, I think, contributed to my downfall in a way. So it's actually an interesting thing. So kind of give a little bit of background. Like I've been someone who's been meditating for almost about, yeah, almost like 10 years now. I kind of started in grade nine and was kind of very on and off and then kind of really got back into it heavily in university. But one of the things I noticed as I was slipping into kind of my anxiety and depression right before medical school the, the, the issue with mindfulness I felt was I was actually like hyper aware of my mind playing tricks on me and how um how I was super focused on the fact that things weren't right and that actually ended up being one of my downfalls because I was trying to engage in CBT at the time which has a lot of mindfulness in, in its roots and for, and for those who don't know a lot of the core of CBT is taking a thought and trying to find ways to challenge it because we over-identify with our thoughts all the time, right? Like we kind of, as human beings, love the fact that we have a brain that can tell us things. But a lot of the times, especially when you look back at difficult situations, our mind is very, um, plays a lot of tricks on us, right? It tells us a lot of false things, a lot of false beliefs, false insecurities. So a lot of psychotherapies like CBT, for example, will try to take some of your thoughts. Like, you know, I am a terrible medical student. And it'll kind of take you through like, okay, let's, let's get some evidence for that. Like, what's the evidence for that? And you'll see that, oh, wait, like, hey, I still got into medical school. Like, I'm not failing right now. Or even if I am, this doesn't define me and my worth. And a lot of where mindfulness comes in is it helps you recognize that, A, these thoughts aren't you and they don't define you and that they ultimately pass. Like a really good analogy I've kind of heard is, you know, you can imagine mindfulness like you sitting on a riverbank or kind of like seeing a stream passing by and thoughts that come up are kind of like a log or something floating in the river. And when you're not mindful, you're kind of hanging on to that thing. You're jumping into the water, grabbing onto this log and really sticking onto it and letting it kind of flow you through this turbulent water. So you're kind of holding on to this negative thought of I'm a bad person. I'm not a good student. I'm worthless. People don't love me, blah, blah, blah. And you're kind of really sticking onto that. And what mindfulness does in various therapies and even medications is it makes those thoughts less sticky. So instead of jumping into the water and grabbing into that log, you're kind of just sitting and watching the log come, which is the bad thought, 
you're watching it pass and ultimately all our thoughts pass right um there's very few things that kind of stick with us for a really long time obviously sometimes with trauma and things like that it can get more challenging but usually if we can kind of create some separation um it helps us respond better and helps us not over identify so that's how mindfulness has really kind of come in every single day the other huge thing is it's just helped me been more present and more grateful and appreciative like i'll rec i'll regularly kind of walking and be like oh wow this is like a beautiful tree or, or that's a cool bird and when i wasn't kind of being more present i was just so wrapped in thought right like and a lot of people might kind of remember this where on your regular commute you might totally forget the fact that you drove a route or you might totally forget how you even got from one place or all of a sudden you're showering and you're like wait did I even like shampoo my hair like I can't even remember but that's because we're so lost in our thoughts so so a lot of this kind of helps create that separation so that's where mindfulness has been really useful and, and I really encourage people to kind of look into um, various apps like 10% Happier, there's Headspace, there's Calm, like there's so many even free and accessible ones and yeah, you're, the goal isn't to shut off your mind because that's impossible. The goal is, again, to just create some separations and realize that, hey, my mind's a little bit funny. A lot of in mindfulness circles, they'll call it the monkey mind. Uh, it does all these things. Let it kind of do its thing and then slowly let it pass. So that's kind of where mindfulness is kind of coming. Right. And now if I'm being quite candid, I mean, there are a handful of people who may feel that mindfulness is not for them, whether that's because they believe that they, they do not have the patience to benefit from it or that it just doesn't work. And as you know, to reap the benefits of mindfulness, it takes time. So is there any advice you would offer to either a friend or family member who is struggling to continue with mindfulness and believe that it really works for them? Uh, a thousand percent. Like this is like, you know, as someone who's a big proponent of it, this is something that happens all the time. And even me, right? There's so many days where I'm like, there's no way you could pay me to sit down and sit here for five, 10, 20 minutes and try to focus on my breath. Like there's just too much going on right now. And I think what's important to realize is that we as humans, we're naturally mindful in various settings. So just because you aren't going to sit on a cushion and practice for five, 10, 20 minutes, doesn't mean you still can't be mindful, right? Even the practice of journaling, the practice of writing down your thoughts, the practice of going for a walk and just checking in with oh, let me look around me. Let me appreciate the tree. Let me feel what's in my body. Or while you're playing a sport or while you're exercising yoga, there's so many ways to kind of tune into the present moment that if, if you really think that kind of sitting down and meditating is inaccessible to you, then you can find other ways. Although I will kind of say that uh, a lot of it is misconceptions, like I've talked about before, because people will sit down and get so frustrated about the fact that they can't shut off their mind. And that's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. And that's why I really recommend starting with good apps like 10% Happier or Headspace, because they'll guide you through that better work. They'll kind of redirect you to realize that the goal isn't at all to shut off your mind. And the goal actually is the opposite, is to allow your mind to go where it needs to, right? But as long as you are recognizing that a thought is a thought and a thought isn't something that's 100% true and something you need to kind of attach to and again, jump into the river and float along with, you can create some separation. So again, mindfulness definitely isn't the be all end all, but I definitely think it's really important to find ways to connect to the present moment to help make our thoughts less sticky. Uh, and if that again is really inaccessible, then you don't even need to, right? Like you can try to access therapy through either student services or, you know, there's a lot of free resources now, like Anxiety Canada has a really great website. They have an app called uh, MindShift CBT. Uh, there's an app called Clear Fear. Like there's a lot of online resources people can engage in that isn't necessarily mindfulness. 
but again, I would challenge the, the, the misconception that uh, the goal is to shut off our mind because I can tell you for one thing, me as a super anxious person, my mind is never off. Like my mind is always buzzing, even if I've meditated for this many years. The key is to realize that some of my anxious thoughts are just thoughts. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And uh, when we last spoke before our podcast, you, you told me that you were a part of a mindfulness retreat. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. And I guess, can you just speak to some of your experiences on that retreat and kind of tell us a little bit about what that retreat was all about? Yeah, I mean, so I've been fortunate to kind of go on a couple now. So I've been to kind of the most kind of significant one I went to was at the Rochester Zen Center down in Rochester. And this was kind of pre-COVID. And I'd kind of gone actually over my birthday weekend, to which my girlfriend and parents were not happy about because I was gone for my birthday. Uh, but what I ended up doing was kind of going and um, I went and you basically follow what's called a monastic schedule. So you're kind of not, you don't have your phone. It's a silent kind of retreat for the, and what you do is you wake up at whatever time, so 4 or 5 a.m. You'll do um, a meditation in the morning that's usually guided, maybe some walking meditation then you'll kind of have a silent breakfast then there might be a teaching by one of the instructors there and then you might do a task like I was kind of I was jokingly cleaning a bathroom on my birthday uh and I was vacuuming and whatever and, and it's just a really cool way to see what is it like to fully disconnect to fully be in a place where your only purpose is to be aware of your mind and kind of get to know yourself better and, and, you know, that's a bit of an extreme, like uh, for many people, it's inaccessible for various reasons. It, it, in Canada and various places across the world, there's there's a thing called kind of Vipassana Meditation Center where they, it's completely free, where people, they offer 10-day meditation retreats. 10 days is a lot, but a lot of people do it, but that's kind of a more free. But now with COVID, actually, a lot of these kind of retreats have been moving online and, and there's usually a lot of scholarships available if you kind of uh, request it. So you know, there's places like the Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, all these things that are doing an online retreat. So those are the ones that I was kind of telling you about, Jordan, that you signed up for uh, in June is, is a couple of online retreats where um, I'll be doing the same thing. We're kind of waking up at, at a certain time and kind of not using my phone and I'll be going through kind of online instruction. So it's a really great way for me to kind of disconnect and check out. But again, there's so many different ways you can do this, right? Like you can do your own, like even traveling or I'm going to go on a road trip or I'm going to spend this weekend not doing any work and just kind of reading and kind of doing whatever I need to do. Um, I, I'm all just a huge component of people finding for, for fi having people find ways to connect to the present moment and connect to nature and who they are as a person. Right. And I think, you know, bottom line, like I think, you know, mindfulness, it doesn't have to be mindfulness. As you're saying, there's so many other resources and so many other apps and, and different ways that you can kind of um, be attuned to your mind and your body and, and find ways to help yourself. So it doesn't have to be one specific thing. Um, where I want to lead next in our discussion is talking about stigma, specifically stigma in the healthcare field. So when most people think of physicians, at least when I, you know, when I think of it, they think of type A individuals, ambitious and high achieving. When doctors come home and finally let their guard down a bit after a long, exhausting day at work, these individuals may feel anxious and stressed. On the topic of this conversation, I quote you saying in a McMaster article, we are still not close to breaking down the stigma of mental illness among healthcare providers. In response to this quote, my question for you is, what do we have to do to get there and how do we do it? Yeah, that's an excellent uh, question. It's something I'm still kind of grappling with and still trying to kind of 
advocated contribute towards, but I think that there's a couple of things. So one, you know, at the medical student level, I think stigma is really apparent because of fear. Um, and there's a lot of fear, and this is kind of what I was alluding to before. And where I think the stigma starts to break down is when people start to be more open and own it, really, like the name of this podcast, right? Owning mental illness, when you're in a place to do so, right? Like, I'm definitely not advocating for people who are depressed and anxious and really in the in the thralls of a, of a bad episode to be advocating and being out there. But when you're in a good place, which is where I am now, is really being open. And, and, and that's how stigma starts to get addressed. It's like, you know, that article I've sent you, and, you know, on my social media, I'm quite open about the fact that I've had these struggles. And I've actually had, I think by now, at least anywhere from 10 to 20 colleagues in my medical school and other medical schools reach out to me and be like, hey, I'm experiencing this. Do you have any suggestions or what should I do? Or what or do you have any advice about medication? Like I've had not even my own colleagues and people just on my page and people I know who I haven't spoken to in years. And I think that's where it's really important is we need more people to be trailblazers and need more people out there because one of the worst things for stigma is isolation. Uh, is when people feel like this is only happening to me and I, 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 and you really think that like, you know, I'm the only one who's been like this, um, something's wrong with me, like, why am I like this? That's when things get bad and that's when stigma kind of perpetuates. So really making it more normalized about the fact that, you know, there are very successful people out there uh, who have been depressed, who have been suicidal, who have been anxious, who are on meds, who are blah, 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 insert whatever kind of mental illness line you want. There's people out there who have done that, right? So it's really important for um, individuals to step up. And then also, you know, at a, at a kind of systems level, like our institutions are, are notoriously really bad places for mental illness. Um, you know, things are starting to change. I think when, when people like myself and you and other people who have kind of been involved in this work start to get into leadership positions, maybe we can start to make some changes. But it's really important to recognize that we're in institutions that aren't necessarily in our best interest, but they're sometimes in the best interest of the public or what they perceive as the public, right? So the hospital's duty is to the patients, the, the, for physicians, our college, the duty isn't really to the physician, the duty is to the safety of patients. Um, so sometimes these kind of institutions can, can make things worse with advocacy by, um, you know, someone needs to take the leave, it can be more punitive and restorative. So, it, you know, that's, that's definitely a big conversation, but I think the most tangible ways to address stigma is to have people who are well to start to advocate and be more open about their stories, because that's how other people start to come forward and other people start to ask for help. Um, so that's really huge. And, and you know, I, I, there's so many colleagues who have come before me, like Dr. Shelley Dev has been really amazing in, in sharing her story. Um, and, you know, that's where I think that, or Dr. Michael Kaufman, who's part of the physician health program here in Ontario, he has been very open about his kind of struggles with addiction and how that brought him to um, kind of founding the physician health program. So it's really people who are, who are doing well to kind of make things. And then ideally one day, hopefully, when the world's a better place, we'll have institutions that really support um, our students, our learners, our workers, our employees. Right. And you speak a lot about how the importance of hearing stories of others in order to help yourself. And I kind of want to, again, reflect on a lot about your anxiety prior to and during medical school. And I want to ask advice to people who may be listening, uh, particularly, is there any advice you would offer a medical student in regard to managing anxiety and or stress 
due to the demand and workload of being in medical school? Yeah, I think, I mean, right away, the first thing that I, I and I kind of keep coming back to this is recognize that you are not alone, right? Like That's the most important thing because reflecting on my time, I truly felt like I was alone. I truly felt isolated. I truly felt like I was the only student in my class of 206 that was experiencing this at the time, which obviously when I look back, I'm like, like that's so distorted and it doesn't make any sense. Like obviously there were more people struggling, um, but that's 100% a big thing. The second is don't be afraid to reach out to, to help confer, you know, obviously do a little bit of research and recognize what's important and where confidentiality lies. But usually most medical schools have a very strong student affairs department that, um, you know, sometimes can do wrong, but usually will at least keep you reaching out confidential. If not, going to your family doctor, going to even just, if you don't want to go through your medical school, just go to your student, like student wellness center on campus. Um, trying to reach out for help is really important. But then, you know, like you kind of alluded to, we're medical students, we're type A, we're very good at kind of doing things online and put a lot of work into things. You can put a lot of work into yourself, right? Like, it's, you don't need to just put work into medical school, you can put work into engaging in psychotherapy yourself. Obviously, sometimes when you're really, really down in a really bad spot, sometimes you can't do that. And that's where medications can sometimes help. But, you know, accessing some of the free resources out there, right? Like, I, that's something that really helped me was getting involved in group psychotherapy. So I did three or four different groups through the Student Wellness Center that was free. I did a mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy group through the Mindfulness Center in Toronto. I, I, tried, I applied for a bursary slash scholarship because normally it's quite expensive and I wasn't insured. Uh, but there's a lot of work you can kind of put in uh, and, and not to, again, put the onus on the individual because I know how difficult it can be in those dark times to push yourself, even to just get out of bed and, and brush your teeth or, or take a shower, let alone engaging in hours of psychotherapy, right? But um, it's huge to connect, connect to others, connect to services, uh, connect to psychotherapy. And again, Anxiety Canada is a great website. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's the biggest piece of advice is recognizing you're not alone and reaching out for help as soon as you can. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I want to bring the discussion back to how you were able to own your anxiety. Can you please speak to how you got to this point in your life, where now you're so open about speaking about your experiences? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's still a struggle. And actually, to be fully transparent with you, Jordan, even when I was kind of waking up this morning and thinking about the fact that I was kind of kind of be on this podcast speaking about this there there was always still a little bit of nervousness you know because I'm always like oh like what if a future employer listened to this or a future kind of, or the college or someone that can hear the story and be like oh like is this guy going to be a competent psychiatrist who knows right like there's always still that concern but I think the biggest thing for me is, and again, this is, or again, I'm coming back to why it's so important for other people to speak up, is it was huge for me to, to have mentors who have been in my shoes. Like, I know a lot of um, psychiatrists who have been open about their experiences with um, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, uh, and addictions, and how that's made them a stronger physician. Um, that's been really huge for me. Um, being very comfortable in my own skin and comfortable with what I bring to my career and my, my kind of um, what I bring to the profession and, and that's obviously takes time it takes a lot you know it took a lot of clinical rotations and a lot of weeks of talking to patients to be like hey you know even though I've, I've been someone who, who is super super depressed and super anxious like I can still do my job and this actually is a strength and I think that's where 
I guess, come back to owning it. That's where the, the, the big money is, is realizing that your struggle and your experiences with various mental illness, it, it does make you um, a stronger human being eventually, right? It might not seem like it in the present. It might not seem like it a year, two years, three years, but eventually you will look back and say, I appreciate life more because of what I've been through. I appreciate um, uh, how certain things that seem like very difficult situations in the long run don't actually matter that much. Your, your perspective changes, your ability to cognitively reframe things changes. Like a lot of this is to, to, to truly own it. You really have to dig deep and believe that you bring a lot of value to, to whatever kind of place you're in. Um, and that um, there's people in your court, right? There's people who have been there before you who are very successful, still struggle with mental illness. But again, a lot of us are in hiding because of various fears and, and struggles. So the more of us that own it, like really, it, it truly will make um, the world a better place for those suffering. And I know you spoke about this before, but I, I do want to ask you again, I, I guess, were there any barriers along the way to owning it? Maybe you had a huge fear. Uh, you talked about isolation and feeling like you were alone, um, but maybe perhaps there are other fears that you could speak about. Yeah, I mean, isolation was a big one. I think another one was, was always on the back of my mind and still sometimes is, is what are the implications of uh, being public on your career, on how people perceive you, even like friends and family, like, you know, I, I'm actually someone who, you know, most people would describe me as someone who's pretty loud, someone who's pretty social. I'm, you know, if you see me in a public place, I'm, I might be um, with people. I mean, talking to a lot of different people. Uh, I'm not someone who's shy. Like I'm very, very extroverted, and that comes with its downsides because you know I also care a lot about what people think about me. And sometimes I'm like, I don't really want someone to think that, you know, if they have their own stigma, I don't want someone to be like, oh, he's the this guy is like anxious or depressed or whatever right like sometimes you can definitely have those fears of how will people perceive you so yeah I think those are the barriers is what people think of me like repercussions but the more I do it the more I realize how common it is and, and it's actually more unique especially now in such a troubling pandemic for people to not have struggles with mental illness right and I want to ask you one more question today and that is, where do you see yourself as a psychiatrist in 15 or 20 years? And essentially what I mean by this is, how do you hope to help your patients as a psychiatrist? And what do you hope your patients will say about the role you have played in their life? Yeah, that's, that's uh, it's a great positive kind of thing to end on. It, it makes me excited. I'm really, really, really grateful to kind of be in the position I'm in, um, you know, getting into medical school and being here coming from you know a lower income background like having parents who, who really struggle to make ends meet like uh, one huge thing is just to be able to give back to, to communities of low income and people who really struggle financially so I definitely want to be um, really involved in working with marginalized populations whether it's through psychiatric emergency departments I've considered even doing like forensics where I'm kind of working with people who um, are kind of incarcerated um, you know, I'm probably going to do a mix of a bunch of things. I even consider kind of first episode psychosis because, you know, schizophrenia is can be such a debilitating disease. So to work with people early on, I think I'm most leaning towards actually child and adolescent psychiatry. But again, I just told you four different things I'm also interested in. So I definitely, um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite open to exploring whatever kind of comes, but I definitely know that I want to be in a role where I'm kind of 
truly just, or I guess if I could look back 20 years from now and say, I've contributed to reducing the mental suffering of many people, I would be more than happy. You know, if, if I could look back and say, you know, there's at least one to 10 to a hundred to a thousand people who, because of my interaction with them, they've um, tolerated the world a bit more and, and have looked at the world as, as a better place than they once thought or feel like their lives, lives are a bit better, then I'll know I've done a good job. So definitely giving back what would make me feel really good. And in terms of interactions, you know, I hope people um, never feel like I have uh, stigmatizing views towards them, that I, that I um, view them as inferior to me. Um, so really just always kind of bringing compassion in, into all aspects of my life. And that's where mindfulness and Buddhism and all these things have really helped is, is recognizing how important compassion is. Because if everyone was a little bit more compassionate, then the world would be a better place, right? So being a compassionate psychiatrist gives back would be really important to me. Right. And you obviously shared a lot about your own mental health experiences. And I think that will go a long way in helping others as well as you share your story. And obviously, as you said, you have a lot of great interests and passions, and I'm confident that you're going to do amazing things in the future here. So uh, with that, thank you for joining me. I appreciate you being so honest and open throughout our discussion. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best of luck in the future. So congratulations again on getting into psychiatry. Thanks, Jordan. And good for you, man, for doing this podcast. I think it's something that's really, really needed. Uh, and I, I'm excited to hear more, uh, more of it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566 or text 45645. As well, through Wellness Together Canada, Individuals of all ages in Canada or Canadians abroad can access supports ranging from self-assessment and peer support to free and confidential sessions with social workers, psychologists, and other professionals. Call 1-866-585-0445 if you are an adult, or 1-888-668-6810 if you are a youth. Thank you for tuning in and listening to episode 19 of the podcast Own It, featuring Satyam Chowdhury. Follow ownit underscore podcast on Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes.